good morning, afternoon, or evening, and welcome to the Bloody Disgusting Network. The passage of time will now bring you to something strange, unique, and idiosyncratic. Have a good time. My friendship to all of you precludes my involvement with any one of you. But if you wanna make love, then I do too, and I'll be right there behind you. Greetings, constant listeners, and welcome to another episode of The Losers Club, a Stephen King podcast. This isn't just another episode, though. No, this might be the most anticipated episode we've ever done with this podcast. And why is that? Well, because we got our name from this book. And what book is that? 1986's It. And this is the first of several episodes that we'll be devoting to this book. And in this first part, we're going to cover the history, the hook, and the structure and format of King's epic, in addition to our first introductions to the novel itself. Now, we have a lot of losers on this episode. We have four. And that's a little different from the ones that we've had over the past 10 episodes, because this summer, we spent a lot of time in a small town in Maine called Castle Rock. And we're going to move to another small town in Maine. You might know it as Derry, Maine. And this is a town that also, similar to Castle Rock, has a lot of history. The history goes back <laughs> centuries. Yeah. And there's some evil stuff that has gone down. And we're going to go through that evil. But first, let me introduce myself. My name is Michael Trashmouth Rothman. I'm editor-in-chief and president of Consequence of Sound and also a constant contributor of the Losers Club. And you might have heard my voice through every episode of those Castle Rock breakdowns. And here I am ready to conquer my fears because I grew up as a little boy wandering around the streets of Derry. Acting like a little know-it-all smart mouth, except I was called trash mouth, as I already mentioned in my nickname. But I'm not the only loser here. We, similar to the losers, the adult losers in the book, we're scattered everywhere. But let's first talk about the one loser that is in this studio right now, and that is... Mackenzie Haystack Gerber. I'm a constant contributor to this podcast, as well as Halloweenies, which will be wrapping up next month. Um... Yeah, I've been uh, hanging around, running away from bullies, and um, getting my belly cut. I know. So, uh, and not cut in a ripped way, cut in a <laughs> H way. But you've uh, slimmed down considerably <laughs> over the years. Uh, yeah, that's true. That's true. But, mm-hmm. you know, um, I've been running a lot, and oh, yeah. uh, I recently punched my coach out, and I'm, I'm feeling good. <laughs> well, I'm, some... ready. I'm ready to tackle my fears. Uh, and, uh, who, who else do we have with us? I believe we have some other adult losers that are scattered in other towns. Let's start with Texas. Uh, hey everyone, this is Dan Eds Caffrey. I moved to Austin to start a successful limousine company and uh, my <laughs> wife, uh, my wife Susan's currently freaking out because she has to pick up Al Pacino and, uh, she just, she doesn't know if she oh, can do man. it. Uh, I hear he's a really yeah. nice guy. Yeah, what a, what a handful. I, yeah, I've heard that. Yeah, um, it is. It is funny. Um, all joking aside, uh, I think I think one loser a while ago when they were, or one listener a while ago when they were casting the Losers Club was like, "Oh, I assume Dan is Eddie because uh, he disappeared, and I can only assume it's because his mom was overbearing and won't let him do the podcast." Um, 
But yeah, I, I don't think I'm too much of a hypochondriac. Uh, but I did break my arm when I was eight years old. Um, I felt oh. the monkey bars. It wasn't. It wasn't in like a cool fight or anything. But oh, uh, so I did, relate. Did someone I relate write loser a lot on to it? Eddie's, uh, what do you say? Did someone what? Someone write loser on it? <laughs> no, my, but my dad did draw. Um, it was. I had two casts because my arm was broken for a while, and on the first one, my dad drew Wolverine because I was really into comics at the time and still am. And on the second one, he uh, he drew the Red Skull from Captain America. But looking back, I'm like, oh, good, I had a Nazi villain on my. Uh, on my <laughs> head, you know? It's a little controversial there. I know. Yeah, I mean, you know, hey, hey, it's just it's just the funny pages. Um, hey, maybe I, I, maybe you're a character from Apt Pupil uh, instead. Yeah. Oh yeah. boy, and <laughs> who, who and who else is uh, is out there in the Barrens? Oh hi, this is Mel Marshhead Castle, um, <laughs> standing in for for Bev Marsh in Iowa City. Although I'm supposed to be in Chicago with my awful husband. Um, this is true. Oh, that's yeah. Right. You have your awful uh, awful boyfriend, uh, Ian Harmon, <laughs> who's just so he's just a real Tom Rogan, also. But you know. Yeah, just really loud, uh, really demanding. For, the, the joke is that he's not. He's, he's not. Very <laughs> nice. He's a nice person. Well, Mel, um, we wish you were here in Chicago. Uh, being no, I can't say it. <laughs> I, I wish you were here also, and that's not a reference to Pink Floyd. That is a legitimate wish. But what's your feeling? I'm very you, touched. I think all of us have been touched though by this book, and uh, not in a very controversial Catholic Church way. Clearly. We love this book. Mm-hmm. Clearly, this book uh, hit us in a certain way enough that we called this podcast The Losers Club, as you know it, and have known it for the past year and a half. Uh, but what were your first experiences with this book? And I want to start with uh, old Casprack down there in uh, Texas. Caffrey, tell us uh, your first experiences with it. So, totally. So I think like a lot of, pe- a lot of kids my age... Um, because I was, I guess I was about six when the miniseries came out. And I remember that just being really freaky. Um, I would see the paperback uh, movie tie-in edition in the stores and just be like, why is that creepy-ass clown on the cover? Um, and that was always one of the Stephen King books that my dad was like, maybe you can read this one when you're a little bit older. Um, but I actually read it for the first time when I was uh, nine years old over the summer. I remember I'd watched the miniseries. I wanted to read the book. I was staying with my grandparents at the, at the Jersey Shore in Long Beach Island. And, um, yeah, my grandparents didn't really know any better. So they let me check it out from the library. And I remember, <laughs> I remember really digging it and very much understanding all the scary elements of the book, uh, all the monster sequences, but I don't even remember coming across a lot of the sexual stuff. And that's probably cause I didn't understand it. And then I've, I think I've reread it like at this point, three or four times. And every time I've reread it, even this most recent time for the podcast, I have just noticed more insane disgusting details where i'm just like holy shit like i mean i read that when i was nine but i I don't i don't know if it was like i repressed it or it i just didn't understand it or traumatized me but yeah because i don't remember like the patrick hockstetter stuff with with henry bowers and bev's relationship with tom like i got that it was abusive but i just didn't understand any of the the highly suggestive material not even suggestive the very explicit material found in this book um but yeah, it's always been one of my favorites. Um, I definitely do think it has its flaws. It's it, it. I don't know how well it sticks its landing, but I think this just feels like King's master thesis on horror to me. It's mm-hmm. like so maximalist, and I'm really excited to talk about it today. Let's hear from Marshhead over there. Oh, thanks, Trash Mouth. <laughs> um, 
Yeah, I stole a first edition jacketless copy from my aunt's house. Um, Nice. She had, it's this giant black book that I still own, and it's got blood red it and like very blocky text on the spine and it's it's gigantic like I can't take it anywhere um and just the way it looked was so foreboding that when I was probably I don't know I was probably like eight or nine um I took it from her office and just like stuck it in my backpack um and never told her about it and she never asked about it and like Caffrey I definitely glossed over a lot of the more adult aspects of the book but they they really struck stuck with me for their tabooness. Um, mm-hmm. So while I didn't know what they really meant, there is like even a particular line in this first section when he's talking about Bevan. He says her nipples were cold, hard as bullets. Like that is the line that I associated with it, and I was like, I'm reading a very grown up book. Um, I'm very proud of the fact that I'm reading this book because I can read about nipples and take it seriously, and no one else my age is probably doing that. Um, and I, I do agree that it's definitely like his thesis on horror. I think it's there's so many references to what he talks about in Dance Macabre, even in this first section alone, that he really feels like he's examining the things he examined there in his nonfiction piece and just kind of like going buck wild in his imagination. And I think it's just so it's the epic that I prefer to The Stand and his other longer works because I think it's much more intimate and I think he is fascinated with how the minds of children work and to go from their minds to the adult minds and have the epic be contained within their friend group and their emotions rather than this sprawling full world superflu is something that pays off for me much more um, than the literally grander setting of The Stand, say. Mm -hmm. I can see that. I can absolutely see that. What about you, Haystack? I read this book three about started reading it about three months ago. <laughs> well, so that's... I have never read. So okay, so here's yeah. the thing: I started to read this book mm-hmm. before we started this podcast, yeah. and I was about two, three hundred pages in, and we said, "Oh, you know, we should do this Stephen King podcast." And you know, of course, no one believed us or believed in us. And uh, <laughs> we just walking around the streets you know, of Chicago. Yeah, we just kept pleading no to people one to that we wanted us. to do this, but no one would sit, no one would give us the money or the or the time. Uh, so we started doing the podcast, and I, of course, I put that on hold and went back and started reading Carrie, and and I never went back, knowing we were going to get to it eventually. Mm-hmm. Um, but my first experience with it in general was the miniseries, yeah. um, as as it was for a lot of people, I'm sure. Um, and I remember watching that at my grandparents' house. They allowed us to watch it with my my older brother. And I was completely and utterly terrified <laughs> of this clown. And um, I was always really interested in reading the book. And I'd always heard tales of a turtle. And <laughs> I was just and it's at the end of this book. And I just thought, how does this end? How does this end? Like, it, it's going to get crazy. So I'm really excited to get to that episode. But um, that was really my first experience was a, f- a few months ago. And, and I, I loved every minute of it. So I'm really excited to talk about the first chapter today. Yeah, you're really gung ho with this reread. I mean, out of everyone, I think the reread or even a reread. This wasn't a (laughs) reread. This is an actual read. Yeah, yeah. Well, for me, this was a very tough reread just because I had actually come across this book only like a few years ago. Uh, This is yeah. So I I always put this one off because it's very dense. It's very large, and I'm not a huge. I'm just not really crazy about clowns and stuff. I just it's not that I'm scared or anything. I just they don't really do much for me. And so even when I was younger, when the miniseries had dropped, um, you know, like a Jay-Z album, <laughs> but no, I, I remember it when it premiered 
and everyone in school talking about it. Uh, and I just didn't see it. I mean, you know, you miss that first episode, you're kind of screwed. So you're just like, well, I guess I'll rent it one day. And as a kid, you would go up and down, you know, the halls of Blockbuster and just eat up everything, uh, kind of like Pennywise the Dancing Clown himself. I really just always skipped over this because really like you didn't like the poster, right? Well, yeah, I just didn't. Nothing really drew me to it. I just it just looks so cartoony. I there was something about like seeing, oh, look, it's the guy from Home Alone 2 and Rocky Horror, like as this clown. It just looked lame to me. (laughs) And the the cast, I was like, well, I guess I know the dad from Problem Child. And so I just never (laughs) watched it. I just never watched it. And my friends and I were obsessed with Seth Green. That's the reason we watched it. See, but I didn't even know that these characters were in it. So it it just was like, I I just saw that cover. And I was like, well, I don't recognize any of these people. They're a lot older. And and it was like a three hour movie. And I was like, I don't have the time for this. I mean, the only child actor that I knew in it was at the time was probably John the Brandis, yeah, yeah, because it's because uh, of you know, Sequest Never Ending Story 2. Well, Never yeah. Ending Story 2 for you, but for me, it was also <laughs> Ladybugs, starring a Jewish comedian Rodney Dangerfield, oh, Rodney, uh, who was a god to me, and so I knew him. Uh, I swear to God, film. someone was showing me a picture of Jonathan Brandis on their phone last night because we were talking about <laughs> celebrity deaths. And which one had affected them the most? And I was like, I have no idea who that is. Please tell me who that is. And he's in he's in the miniseries. Yeah, he's he's young Bill. Oh yeah, young Bill. He's, he's, he's really good. At he's it, really good in it. Yeah, he's I actually. Gotta, I gotta great. say, he still, I, he's still my favorite Bill. Yeah, no, I actually recognized from the from the miniseries for like the dumbest thing because I yeah I didn't know who Seth Green was at that time or I I don't even think I I, I guess I knew who John Ritter was. But the kid who plays Ben, who I don't even have his name in front of me, he was one of the McDonald's kids on like a yes. lot of those McDonald's commercials, and that. Oh, so I, he was like the one person I recognized. But of course, but, Mike knows that. Yeah, of course, because <laughs> I was, I was, I gravitated towards McDonald's or anything that involved um, bad food. Because uh, you might say I was a little uh, Ben Hanscom myself uh, growing up <laughs> as a kid. I really first read this book only like a few years ago. Yeah, like you, someone had already mentioned already on this episode. It's a very heavy book. I think Mel, you just you talked about how big your the the first edition that you had, and for me it was kind of daunting to carry this thing around um, uh, even a few years ago. So, but I was traveling with it, and so I would read it in South Florida, and then I brought it to Sundance one year in 2015, and I I got so tired of carrying around this huge giant book that I actually just started tearing off the pages that I didn't actually want to read. I know this is I'm a I'm a real uh, Nazi over here. <laughs> Uh, it's like the maybe scene from Last try, Crusade. Maybe, maybe you should try um, reading books instead of, uh, well, I guess destroying you were reading them? it and then I was it. reading them and destroying <laughs> it. And so what was actually kind of funny was I was I was uh, doing Pennywise's work because what I was doing was I was taking pages from the book and then just throwing them out and everywhere I was going. So my pages. So what the, determined what pages you would throw out and what pages when you I was keep? finished. When I was finished with each oh, page, I would just, yes, my, the next page would be the one yeah. that would be left. And I just didn't want to. So slowly and surely, I had this little paper thin novella. And I, there are pages of my book that I read back in 2016, 2015, 2016 in South Florida, in Chicago, in Ohio, in Park City, uh, Utah, uh, in Edinburgh, Scotland, in London, England, in York, England, and Manchester, England. All these pages scattered. Area. So somewhere in garbage heaps uh, across the world is my copy of it. But and you're, I read you're, glad you're out you're there polluting what the they world. go through. Yes. Like you, you experience it and then you lose it. Yes. And you can't even go back and reference it. No. It's just something that looms in the back of your mind. Yes. And that was actually a big problem when I was reading this book because they're, you know, as they get back to these memories, you're like, oh, wait a second. I probably should go back oh, there. No, no, never mind. Just keep trucking forward. So 
you know, rereading this, you know, this summer, I actually went with the Stephen Weber audiobook. And I don't really do audiobooks a lot, but this is a very um, busy summer. And um, someone had recommended it to us and said, hey, Weber does a great job. And I'll agree with them. Weber does do a great job. In fact, Weber, Weber does a great Pennywise. So I'll be talking a little bit, to, you know, bits and pieces about the audiobook as well. Uh, because I've been taking it one chunk at a time. So he's solid. I mean, look, Stephen Weber knows Stephen King because he played Jack Torrance in the 97 miniseries. Um, what King... Is he better as Pennywise than as Jack Torrance? Oh, easily. Easily. He's not better than, as he... Bev Marsh, though. Um, I but... think he would admit that, too. I, I read the Scribner edition with the, um, the clown smile and uh, the bright red Pennywise clown nose on it. Um, I also have a first edition that Mike gifted to me at home, mm -hmm. uh, which will be the one that I sleep with. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so very interesting. I think we've 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 all we've all met this book at different walks in our life, and um, yeah, yeah. I think I, I mean I think when you look at this though, I think you know when we want to go into the history of this book because this is really the episode that we're actually going to be able to delve into this because we're not going to be yeah. scattering this history through the five or six mm -hmm. episodes we're doing this. You know. This is a master thesis of horror in some respects for King. You know, it's his 22nd book uh, and his 18th book written under his own name. Uh, he first conceived the story in 1978 and then he began writing it in 1981. And he said that he originally wanted the title character, it Pennywise, to be this kind of like troll, kind of similar to the this from the, the, the kind of children's story, uh, Three Billy Goats Gruff. Uh, and, you know, he wanted this thing to inhabit the local sewer system and it would be underneath a bridge and, you know, interweaving all these stories between children's and adults. And it's a Norwegian fairy tale. And it's actually depending on how you get the translation, sometimes it could be like a grandfather, a father and a son, or it could be three different brothers. But they're all like goats that go after this troll. Um, clearly, this isn't a story of goats in, in Maine, but there's this idea that it's... I think there is a lot of folklore, old style, old style folklore in this story that he has. And it does to what Mel had suggested feel like a greatest hits anthology of sorts of just like, all right, he's putting everything he can into this book. Um, you know, he wrote it. It's a lot, one of the longest, uh, you know, in terms of his journey of writing this book, when you look back at, you know, he he always ends his uh, his books with like the dates of how long he wrote it. Mm -hmm. This one does go on for a while. He started in September 9th, 1981, and he finished in December 28th, 1985. So when he started writing it, he actually sat down. Cujo was just being published. I thought you were just bringing wow. Cujo into it in general. No, 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 no. I feel like the genesis of this book is really important to find out where king was at the time yeah, and yeah his mentality of writing this book and then also once it's published why his feelings were what they are which i'm going to get to in a second but mm. he finished the book in a year that saw no king or bachman books and in fact that year silver bullet and cat's eye both came out in 1985 so that whole year when he was finishing up this book there were no stephen king books there were no bachman books but Silver Bullet and Cat's Eye both came out in both films he did write the screenplays for. Um, and so if you, Cujo, if Cujo was being published at the time he started this book, was Cujo the last book he had finished? Was that like the one he had finished writing most recently before he started writing this one? I believe he he because he still published several books in like 82, 83, 84. So I imagine he's still concurrently writing those those other books like Pet okay. Cemetery. Um 
and, and whatnot, but he's still steeped in horror. So if you go to his well, trajectory, it's interesting because you know, Cujo and both both Pet Cemetery and Cujo are, are so bleak and about like how children can't like that monsters are real and that children can't actually overcome them when they confront them. And so I wonder if he was like, man, I gotta, I gotta do something. A yeah. Different. Right. I yeah. mean, just the whole thing about the, the kid and, and the closet and Frank Dodd and the mo- the boogeyman. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I could see where his mind was still lingering on, on children and, and how they process horror. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. think about it. I mean, from 1981, so he finishes, <laughs> he finished road work, uh, and then he published Cujo huge in 81. Influence. Yeah, huge influence on this. <laughs> that great book that is. Yeah, I uh, love that book. In 82, he published The Running Man <laughs> and also published The Gunslinger, both books that seemingly have a lot of ties to the past for him where he just kind of dusted off a lot of ideas and stories that he was going to do to put out there. Uh, in 83, he published Christine, Pet Cemetery and Cycle of the Werewolf. I think there's a lot to take in from that, especially with Christine, the way things are going, like with the whole LeBay storyline and how there even, seems to be a split nostalgia. narrative. Mm-hmm. Even the werewolf the stuff 50s. in it yeah. is, is informed probably by oh, Cycle. Totally. You know, I mean, the so, they're doing that. The Cycle of Werewolf feels very similar to a lot of the kind of short story-esque motifs that are in um, uh, in it, yeah. for sure. And with Pet Cemetery, I think that bleakness that Mel had pointed out was very that idea of like the fractured family and the sins in the past, like coming back to haunt you, whether it's the dead or the, the grief that you feel and the guilt that you feel that Lewis feels, or even Judd for that matter, I think has Mm -hmm. a lot of ties with, with it. And then, you know, in 84, he does the talisman and thinner. And I think the sort of tongue in cheek horror of thinner you could almost argue is very similar to some of the stuff that's welded into this as well. Cause there's, there is a lot of this kind of adult, I feel like thinner and I, and on that episode, I really hammered down the, the idea that thinner has a very um, pulpy uh, playboy adult, you know, fiction uh, mm-hmm. vibe to it. You know, it feels like adult horror. And I think that there are parts of it, especially when you t- get to the adult portions um, and especially with what, what everything that happens with Bev when she's an adult and Tom feel very uh, in sync with some of the stuff that he was going in with thinner. So when you, you when you're saying that this does feel like some sort of thesis on what he's talking about with horror, I think you're dead on right with that, because mm-hmm. I think that's exactly what he was working towards with this. He and was, we'll probably get into this, but it's also extremely meta. Like he. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, there's so many yeah, characters, especially. Oh, and, yeah. yeah. I think in, I remember from the miniseries, they even, um, they show Bill as like, they show one of Bill Denbrough's books and it's called the glowing instead of the shining, which is like, yeah, it's, yeah, yeah, there, there, there's definitely a lot of, a lot of those winks of like, oh, like I, she didn't like those stupid horror books. Like who would write those kinds of things, you know? But anyway. Well, either way he, I mean, this is a big production, even from, you know, the publisher, uh, cause he received a $3 million advance for the book. God. So yeah, yeah, pretty, pretty big. I mean, Viking was just all in on this. They were like, all right, you're going to give us, I mean, cause if you think about it, like look at all the books that they had published previously, they, they, they did, you know, they did Christine, uh, they did the talisman. They did, uh, I mean, they did Cujo, uh, Firestarter, the dead zone. I mean, they clearly knew what they had on their hands and they were yeah. like, Oh wow, this guy's going to write this huge giant home. Like then we got to put some money into this. Um, now when it came out, 
it was a success. Publishers Weekly listed it as the best-selling book in America in 1986. It won the British Fantasy Award in 1987 and re- received nominations for the Locust and World Fantasy Awards that same year. Although not everyone was big on it. In fact, the New York Times had a very not-so-positive review for Ooh. it. Um, <laughs> I'm going to read just a little passage of, uh, from that, that review because I think it's interesting to, to kind of use that as a preamble to what my next point is going to be, sure. uh, which is going to be where King was in his mind after publishing this book because it's, this does feel very much like a purge of a certain Stephen King that we might not actually see in future books coming up. Um, so this is the, the section I, it's very, towards the very end of the New York Times review, um, which was published in i believe august of 86 oh wow my birthday august 21st 1986 i was celebrating a two-year-old birthday at the time um, guys it's all about cycles i'm feeling this very keenly in a, yeah. in a borderline supernatural sense it's very crazy <laughs> so somewhere i was uh, two years old rolling around probably in my night rider car uh with my parents who were still together and unhappily uh, married in south florida but either way this is the this is the section i'm going to pull out The novel is filled with every sort of scary set piece that Mr. King is so adept at contriving. Nightmarish chases, trips into the cellars where monstrous creatures may be lurking, a photograph album that bleeds, a bathtub drain that cackles hideously and gouts blood. I don't know offhand if it was Mr. King who first revised the verb form of gout, whose obsolete meaning, according to the Oxford English Dictionary, was to drop or to gutter, but blood in these pages gouts everywhere like water gushing from a fire hose. Such set pieces help to hold our interest in this epic of coprophilia. So do Mr. King's raw powers as a yarn spinner of horrors, his sense of pace and scene, his almost adolescent affinity for the gross and vulgar. But he has set himself two formidable plot challenges. One is to produce something terrifying enough to justify Stanley Uris's decision to commit suicide rather than face whatever is lurking in the sewers of Derry. The other is to explain what moved the children to pledge their lives to the city on that fateful day of the blood oath. In neither of these challenges does Mr. King quite succeed. Nothing other explains why Uris cuts his wrist or why the gang has to reunite. The story moves along, but for all its awesome stage effects, it huffs and puffs and creaks and clanks. It lacks the political vision of the dead zone. It misses the logic of Firestarter and Cujo. It wants the brooding, ominous mood of The Shining. It has nothing like the funereal oppressiveness of Pet Cemetery. It tries too hard. It reaches for too much. It's too damn complicated. Or maybe you simply have to have a thing about drains for it to terrify you the way it obviously meant to. Now, we know that King at this point in his life, 71 years old, his birthday was Friday, he doesn't really give a shit about reviews. He just doesn't care. Right. But at this point, I'm pretty sure he fucking cared every bit. Why? Why do you say that? Because, I mean, at the time... I think it, I think there is there's de- there, there's definitely that that assumption that he you know he is the master of horror he made his name he definitely embraces that and we see that throughout the 80s and all but there's something that's interesting that I didn't realize that happened after it that I found in uh, my uh, Mike Hamlin esque research uh, for this oh, history so this is uh, Mike's interlude number one and this is interlude number one uh, <laughs> apparently after the publishing of it King wanted to quit horror. So Whoa. this is yeah this is from a piece that was in Time magazine who cites one of their 1986 profiles with King at the time. Um, for now, as far this is a this is a, a quote that um, King told Time at the time of release of um, of it. Okay. For now, as far as the Stephen King Book of the Month Club goes, this is the clearance sale time. Everything must go. 
Uh, he the the presses, and this is from the article. The press is still warm from printing his 1,100-page doorstop of a novel, as the magazine described it. The indisputable king of horror was ready to toss out both his bread and the butter. Um, now, the writer of this article who was looking back, this is from last year when the movie became, you know, this giant juggernaut blockbuster. Right. Time Stefan Camfer, he speculated that King's decision might have had something to do with the competition nipping at his heels. Uh, he conceded that the British horror novelist Clive Barker, uh, this is King, thought Clive Barker was better than I am now and a lot more energetic. And so the, he also, this this guy, um, Camfer, also re- uh, references the same profile that was in Time and says that, uh, King was really self-deprecating in his profile. So this is, again, right when it finally is being published. So you'd think that he'd be like, oh, like, oh, yeah, oh, my God, gung-ho. I just finished this fucking epic bo- book. Uh, but he called it a very badly constructed book. Uh, and he claimed to have had no more than three original ideas in his life. And then he described his writing as the literary equivalent of a Big Mac and large fries for McDonald's. And and then the, the writer Camford goes on to say that given the popularity of that meal, perhaps this is less of a jab than a credit. Now, my theory on this is that if you look back at the trajectory of when this book came out and what was actually coming forward, he was coming off of a year of doing so 85 he finishes it, right? So that same year, he also was working on mo- two movies that were coming out at the same time the following year. One was obviously Maximum Overdrive, which is just Maximalist King at that point, which is just Stellar crazy. King. And it's by all accounts, he was just a crazy cokehead during this, the production of this. So that could also have to do with a lot of his self-deprecation. Here. I think so. But here's the thing that I think, and this is what I think t- it really kind of veers into what the works that come after this, because we start seeing little hints and we pieces of Prestige King. The next two things we get are Misery and then Tommyknockers, yes? Yes, Tommyknockers, okay. which is, yeah, we'll, we'll go into that. Tommyknockers is another, yeah. another Coke book. That's yeah. Like the yeah. ultimate Coke, uh, King yeah. on Coke book. Yeah. But if you recall, what film do we consider the greatest Sting- Stephen King adaptation that comes out in 86? What's the year? What, 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 what movie comes out then? We, in 86? We screened it at our, at our uh, film festival over the summer. It involves four boys going oh, on. Oh, stand by, of course, yeah. So this is one of the first times that you really do see Prestige King coming out onto the screen. And mm-hmm. I think, this is just me theorizing and speculating, because this is my favorite part of the podcast, uh, is to figure out where his mind is at at this point. I think, if you recall, they didn't want it even called The Body. They didn't even want to promote it with Stephen King in there. And I think at that point, maybe he felt... Well, I am one of the best-selling writers that's out there. I am considered, you know, this huge magnanimous writer, but I don't get the credit that I deserve. I feel he probably felt as if like, all right, this is it. I'm done with horror. I need to start actually proving my chops in another field. And I feel I feel like it is the purge at that point, which is why Mel, I agree with you. I think this is absolutely his master's thesis, but I also feel it's almost like his like long love letter to the horror franchise in general. And Well, and it's interesting that misery is next which is about like a writer being trapped by expectations yeah of... yeah absolutely and it, was da- too... it was dan who first said his thesis on horror don't give me credit for that oh. I, I... Oh, either way. <laughs> well and i i'm wondering if i subconsciously ripped it off um I, I was just looking for some articles while you guys were talking and he originally called it his final exam on horror so maybe Ooh. i can't even take credit for that and i know what's interesting is that um Joe Hill, his son, uh, his book Nosferatu, which has a lot of similarities with, uh, to it, both in size and scope, and you know the idea of these children dealing with this supernatural entity. Um, he is called that. I know. I know for a fact Joe Hill is called that his master thesis on horror. Um, so hey, like father, like son. 
It's interesting. It certainly speaks to that sort of greatest hits idea because he gets well, yeah. two different sections to be able to go off on two different styles of horror, you know, from the children's point of view and the adult's point of view. So it is like a perfect vehicle for him to just kind of weld in everything possible. And also he gets, I mean, it's, it isn't even just the fifties and eighties. He gets to talk about, he gets to talk about the 1800s, the early 19th century. I mean, I mean it's the, very expansive. The nature of Pennywise lends itself to pulling in all sorts of horrors because it's anybody's first nightmare. Yeah. So it's kind of like he, he just had free reign to bring in anything that he thought was scary. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, absolutely. I, I think I and, think at the time, yeah, he probably definitely felt like spent, and this is probably it. I mean, he went on to write <laughs> Misery, Tommyknockers, Dark Half, and and and, and then some short stories and things. But I will say that's interesting, Mike, with the the Stand by Me thing. Maybe he was like, well, I wonder if he was kind of burned that they didn't use his name in the. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, and was kind of like. I'm, and and then getting knocked uh, by the Times and, and certain publications, maybe he was kind of thinking of, of yeah, going a different this, route. This book feels so huge and personal, and it's a bid. It's like an argument for, I think, the power of pulp when we get into it with our own minds. Like again, it's just so close to Dance Macabre, and later we will actually see, you know, the literal Gill Man that Stephen King cites in Dance Macabre is like maybe the first monster he was scared of, but you could see the zipper running up the back, so it's okay, but it touches something deeper. And so I can see if he felt like this was failing, this effort to kind of legitimize horror that we experience through pulpy things, he he might get really insecure about it. Um, no, totally. And that goes back to his earliest books even Salem's Lot I mean Ben Mears is pretty much that sort of idealized version of what a writer could be this guy that could shrug off any of the critics and still win at the end of the day Hmm. Um, I mean even Bill Dembro the character itself which we'll go into in our heroes and villains section especially in this uh, part of the book when you actually find out the history of him as a writer, it does feel as if King is is basically saying fuck off to like all his professors that give him Why shit. Why can't a story just be a story? Yeah, which is one of my favorite oh, sections yeah, of this entire that. first yeah. part. Because I've, I've definitely had those sort of experiences in college where you have these... Oh, you better believe I'm feeling it now. Yeah, <laughs> oh, I can't, I can't even imagine. Yeah, I mean, you guys are both like entering the ritual of Chad right now. And... But th- that is interesting about the misery point because, I mean, if you look at Misery in the Dark Half... Those two books are meditations on being a writer and having kind of coming to terms with maybe your own sort of sins and yeah. So it seems like he was yeah. he was shook. Like mm-hmm. yeah, <laughs> yeah. So does anyone else have any other um, thoughts they want to discuss on that? It is dedicated uh, to his children. Oh, it's dedicated to his children. Well, I'm sure his, he was thinking of his children big time, especially with the idea that you know Bill's relationship with Georgie for sure. You know. Um, I, I got some just like fun facts. They're not there uh, that he actually, and I actually didn't know this till just. I now, love fun facts. Fun facts. <laughs> Me too. You know why? Because they're fun. They are fun. Yeah, I don't care for fun facts. <laughs> oh wow! Oh. Mel's gonna take a break while Dan goes into <laughs> yeah. the fun facts. I want miserable. Please mute me. <laughs> I want miserable facts. No, um, just that uh, he actually based Derry on Banger, uh, Banger, Bangor, Maine, um, which I didn't know about until just now. I guess I pictured Bangor as being a little bit more urban, but I guess it's not. Um, and I, I maybe you've seen this interview, Mike, because I know you're a big, uh, a big conehead. But uh, in a 2005 interview with Conan O'Brien, um, King talked about how he had, 
he had been sat next to Ronald McDonald on a plane once. There was a guy playing Ronald McDonald who happened to be in his full clown attire. And King, <laughs> no. kept, King kept thinking, like, oh, my God, this if this plane crashes, I'm going to die next to a clown. Uh, which, yeah, I thought that was uh, pretty funny. That's actually hilarious. Um, I had never heard of that before. Yeah, it was a 2005 interview. So I guess that was when Conan was, what, on NBC? He's on Late so, Night still. Hey, they're about to, uh, they're archiving all those episodes, so we can probably find it. Uh, that would be awesome. Yeah, we should we should definitely share that once that hits, uh, hits the web in yeah. January. It's a shame think, that nobody had uh, smartphones at the time to be able to snap up a photo of that, because that would be just an amazing photo. Of oh, it would go viral in a heartbeat. Oh, oh, actually, yeah. All the, uh, and, and remember when the adaptation of it, uh, the latest one came out last year, there were all those clown sightings like in England and elsewhere. Mm-hmm. So I'm sure that would have, that would have gotten, you know, just as, uh, just as much attention. Yeah. But that's all, that's all I got. I think it's pretty well covered. Don't uh, you guys I think, think that, I mean, I, I feel like, and this could just be my bias. This book kicked off the scary clown craze. Like, I don't know what, were there a ton of scary clown <sighs> media like before this that was getting it? attention like i think uh was that movie funhouse out before this the toby hooper movie i mean that's not that famous so it, it, i don't think it would have been that visible but that's like the only thing i can think of maybe but uh, only, did there actually have anything the only thing that always struck me about this book and and it's not fair because they're two different mediums but i just felt the conceit of pennywise itself is so similar to freddy krueger in a nightmare <laughs> on elm street that it just in a nightmare on elm street came out two years before this and again he started writing this book before nightmare on elm street ever hit theaters but the, the similarities and the parallels between the two are it's it's kind of impossible to dismiss um, i mean i guess there was uh let's see fun fun what year is it no fun, House fun, was eight, fun land fun land came out in 87 but i'm looking and i'm fun house was 81 that's the two but that's the toby hooper film so that would have then that would have predated it then right mm-hmm and then, well, he was, but he had Clowns. already started writing before that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this year and Killer Clowns from Our Space is '88. So, yeah, I think this was the first. Well, and it's so funny too because, like I was saying, when I was a kid, this was known as the Scary Clown movie. The Scary exactly, Clown. yeah. But it's so funny because if you look at this, I have the the first edition right here, which is why I read. If you look at the cover, and I think this is accurate. It's Georgie's boat about to go down the sewer grate, and this green reptile claw is reaching up. So, in the original marketing and on the jacket. They didn't even lean into the clown thing. And I think that's because, yeah, as we know, Pennywise isn't actually a clown. Um, and even though that's still his calling card in a way. So it's funny that this is like this ultimate scary clown book when it's when it's actually something much bigger and, and deeper than that. Well, right. And now the, the clown part is played up entirely like the the Scribner that Mac and I have is, you know, yeah. oh, totally. And, 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 well, clown. and may, yeah, maybe they just didn't think maybe King at the time and his publishers, uh, Viking, they just didn't think that that was enough of a horror trope to lean into. You Which know, is kind your of baffling. Well, it's kind it of is. baffling to me because like, I mean, if you think about it well, in the late seventies from 1972 to I think 78, like John Wayne Gacy was still, he was making headlines. I mean, he killed like, was it over 30 people in the seventies alone? And he was known as the killer clown. I mean, that was, yeah, go the clown. Yeah. Does King ever mention him in any, like, is that, was there any inspiration drawn from that? I actually don't think there, there were obviously comparisons and I think he's acknowledged maybe like subconsciously uh, being inspired, but he said, I think he was most inspired by the clowns that he actually directly references in the mm-hmm. um, book, uh, Clarabelle, Bozo and Ronald right. McDonald. If you watch, uh, actually, when I was reading this, I went back and I watched 
the first appearance of Ral McDonald um, back when Willard Scott from the Today Show, or maybe that's it, whatever news show he was on. Back, he played Bozo, and he also played Ronald McDonald. And Ronald McDonald, like in his early appearances, is pretty freaky looking. Like he he has a um, <laughs> the idea too is that he's always kind of like eating McDonald's food. So he has this um, I think it's like a a cup or like a, a fry dispenser or something as a nose, and he's always carrying like this tray of hamburgers. It's really weird. And he's like he's always and he's always got like a tray on his head full of food. It's very surreal and, and strange. And uh, yeah, you can yeah, you, very... there's a video that's like evolution of Ronald McDonald. Very reminiscent of most Americans these days. <laughs> well, I think I think too it's important to note that the children in the book and the characters in the book do not see clowns as scary until they see Pennywise. That's they think true. of Bozo and they think of Ronald McDonald and they're like, oh yes, that nice clown that I watched on TV. There, it's like the first presentation of like, what if I subvert this normally happy child associated thing? Right, which is I think no, the I whole didn't. reason why he adapts that visage you know no it else uh no it i actually think went a really long way in addition to it it, it was probably around the same time the movie came out um to making kids care of clowns was on uh on the simpsons where homer builds that clown bed for bart <laughs> and, yeah. um, oh, what is yeah. what is, what does bart say he's like he's like uh, can't clown's sleep, gonna eat me, eat me. <laughs> oh wait is. when's poltergeist when did that come out <laughs> oh that, that came out in 82 yeah I mean, I really do think the 80s right, yeah. really just kind of capitalized on the idea that oh, yeah. clowns are not like the, the fun. To be trusted. Brothers. Wait, yeah. I, I mean, just, that, that clown bed, though, from Simpsons, the, the if you shall die before you wake. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but by then, that was so that was like the 90s already. So I think at that yeah. point, it was already part of the, like, the pop culture lexicon. I, I mean, everywhere I've looked. It, there are no links between King admitting that the Gacy thing was an influence. I mean, if anything, he says that his influence for the story really came from just him like walking over a bridge or something. And mm. then and just imagine the idea that um, there would be the trolls under there. And that's where he kind of got into the whole folklore incident. So I, I don't know. It is odd that like it just so happened to be this serendipitous yeah. And I like your, I love your point about Nightmare on Elm Street, which was like one of the first horror films to get fantastic. Yeah. Um, I mean, I can't think of too many other ones in that. that No, it was like the first major one to do it and it like blew people's minds. But it's also grounded in a town where the history is sort of cycling and yeah. yeah. It's generational too because you have the the, the parents, parents they're they're paying for the parents' sins. First Mm -hmm. kids all were killed and now they're second. Are, are going after one that deleted scene. I wonder if uh, I, would, I would have loved if, if, if you know, they all had all these cocktail hours in Hollywood at the time. And Dino probably held a lot of them with all the horror masters that came in. And, you know, like Wes Craven, hot off of a nightmare in Elm Street, walks in and he's like, hey, uh, Stephen, we, why don't we ever work together? He's like, well, I'm working on a book right now. It's a, it's about a killer clown that haunts people, um, haunts people's greatest fears. And then, like, Wes Craven's like, did you not see one fucking movie I made? Like, <laughs> <laughs> What's funny, too, because they have, um, even, even, like, the one of the chapters, you know, The House on Nybolt Street, which sounds a lot like A Nightmare on Elm Street. Uh, Mac, yeah. I wanted to ask you really quick. Yeah. That doc, what's <laughs> you and Justin always said? There's that that gif uh, from Doctor Who. I think it's Doctor Who of the clown mm. of the sad that sad clown or whatever. Was that pre it? Because that, oh, that gif oh yeah, that was I. Well, yeah, I you know I want to believe it is. You know, I'll look it up and I'll let you know. But uh, that is like one of your favorite go to gifs to go. Clown, it's love very clown. creepy. It's it's wait wait that well, was the, the, br- s- the Brits were ahead of us in terms of what is scary. <laughs> hey, yeah. the British the British get a lot of things before us. Yeah. Uh, you know, I've have you heard of the. Fab Four, The Beatles. <laughs> God. 
<laughs> I wanted to ask. I wanted to ask. Um, back in the section about where we talk about our first experience, just super quick, if you can be as concise as possible, what loser you you most connected to when you read the book, and like what, maybe not even necessarily your favorite, but I have to imagine that was part of why you we dig this book so much. Well, how about you? Oh, it's 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 Bev by virtue of. You know, gender yeah. <laughs> which yeah. like sucks. Um, but it's yeah. Bev and Richie, actually. Richie, Richie and Bev. Um, because of I, you know, I was a bit of a trash mouth and I did a lot of comedy in, in college and in high school, and it's sort of the the defense yeah. mechanism resonated with me. A lot of people are like, uh, chill, Mel, chill. Um instead of <laughs> instead of beep beep. I I actually um for me it was I, I love uh, Richie, you know, just in terms of him being a class clown, um, no pun intended, but, uh, just, but I, because that was always kind of, I used to get like kicked out of the classroom for just trying to make jokes and everything, but you did. Yeah. Yeah. And I was also very loud. Like I, they used to always say that like my, my favorite teacher who I love to death, she'd always be like, God, Mike, like I, I love, you know, the, the insight that sometimes you bring or whatever, but you're really loud and I need <laughs> you to leave the classroom. And, and that was like, always, she always, you know, you know, there would always be this like prelude to like, uh, she'd always basically soften it by saying like, look, you know, you're, you're great, but you got to get out of here. And like, you got to leave. You're just too loud. Um, but for me, I, I also really love Mike Hanlon. I, I think like the idea of, I mean, I, I went into college with the idea and knowledge that I was going to get a history degree because I love research and I love looking stuff up. And so for me, that there's something really interesting about his character and very romantic almost this idea that he's like the old knight that stayed behind like i really like yeah. kind of gravitated towards that big time so those two he's for definitely me, one that that comes out more when you read this book as an adult i feel like as a kid you're like oh, mike's lame um. <laughs> yeah well that's <laughs> funny because i read it as an adult so like it just I, yeah. I do wonder if i read this as a kid if i would have loved if i really would have loved richie even more but i don't know true what, what about you mac uh well since well, when i saw the miniseries i i loved um bill and mm. but also really loved mike hanlon even watching it as a kid i, I love that that idea that character or the older mike hanlon at least yeah. and then reading it reading it this year i i feel the same way and i know that we've been i've been cast as handscum and i feel like i embody a lot of those traits i guess or that character but i do think that um i connected most with um the way that mike deals with things and as a, as a child and as an adult, I mm -hmm. feel like I probably would be the one to stay in Chicago and call you guys, give you guys a phone call in the future. Yeah. Well, I'll make sure I, you know, block your number. Um, <laughs> Caffrey, what about you? Um, I actually related the most to Ben, I think growing up. Um, I, I feel like we get the biggest sense of his internal world the most uh, out of all the, all the losers. Like I feel like we're, I mean, we're with all of them, I guess the same amount of time, but you get like his inner monologue a bit. And um, I didn't struggle with my weight or anything growing up, but I did, I, I did just like how kind of contemplative he was. And I think I related to just him getting lost in the world around him and imagination. That sounds like a humble brag, like, Oh, I was so imaginative or something. But, um, but yeah, I think, I think just because we, we see his widest range of emotions, that was, he was just the one that appealed to me. And I love the library. I still love the library. It's like my favorite place to go in the world. So yeah. Well, I love the library also, but uh, did you have something else to add to that? Uh, Just to wrap it up, Dan, that Doctor Who episode was from the Seventh Doctor, and Ace 
and it was called The Greatest Show, and it's Chief Clown, and it was 1988. Chief Clown. Oh. So I will, I'll, I'll post that uh, gif on our socials. Uh, the original Pennywise. Great episode, uh, great doctor, and uh, great companion as well. But uh, the Chief Clown uh, had some classic moments eating up that, 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 the screen time. It is very, not, not very theatrical. Not the original Pennywise if it's from 88. No, it's <laughs> yeah, not. No, it's, it's not, not at all. But, uh, the original Pennywise a, is in the a, book a, that we're talking about far, today. Far <laughs> it by Stephen King. Well, who wants to read the synopsis of their book? And please do tell us what edition it is and who published it. I've got the first edition. If you, if you guys oh, let's hear that first edition. All right, here we go. Here we go. And this uh, this book was twenty two ninety five back in the eighties. Okay, uh, oh, wow. Derry, a small city in Maine, a place as hauntingly familiar as your own hometown. Only in Derry, the haunting is real. It began for the losers on a day in June of 1958, the day school let out for the summer. That was the day Henry Bowers carved the first letter of his name on Ben Hanscom's belly and chased him into the Barrens. The day Henry and his Neanderthal friends beat up on stuttering Bill Denborough and Eddie Kasprak. The day stuttering Bill had to save Eddie from his worst asthma attack, man, spoiler alert, uh, ever by riding his bike to beat the devil. It ended in August with seven desperate children in search of a creature of unspeakable evil in the drains beneath Derry, in search of it. And somehow it ended. Or so they thought. Then, on a spring night in 1985, Mike Hanlon, once one of those children, makes six calls. Stan Yaris, accountant. Richard Records, Tozier, L.A. disc jockey. Ben Hanscom, renowned architect. Beverly Rogan, dress designer. Eddie Kasprak, owner of a successful New York limousine company. And Bill Denborough, best-selling writer of horror novels. Bill Denborough, who now only stutters in his dreams. These six men and one woman have forgotten their childhoods, have forgotten the time when they were losers, but an unremembered promise draws them back. The present, the present begins to rhyme dreadfully with the past. And when the losers reunite, the wheels of fate lock together and roll them toward the ultimate terror. In the biggest and most ambitious book of his career, Stephen King gives us not only his most towering epic of horror, but a surprising reillumination of the corridor where we pass from the bright mysteries of childhood to those of maturity. I think that's actually a really good summary. I, I think, think that's, that's really good. Really long. That's a yeah, great it's book. It's so long, and it's, it, does, it actually spoils pretty much. Like, yeah, it's so specific. <laughs> what we're going to talk about, yeah. But, but I do like that it's absent of those, um, like a spine-chillingly uh, romp of a, of a fucking thing. Or, you know, I feel like that's how all these summaries we usually read are very sensationalist, I think. And I think that accurately uh, describes the novel. And not one mention of, uh, of a clown. Which is interesting. That is true. Uh, let's let's go to the the, the more modern version. Uh, Mel, you have the Scribner one, right? I do. Yeah, the 2016 Scribner paperback. Uh, this might not appeal to you, Dan, if you don't like the rip roaring fucking. <laughs> I, 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 I don't know why I said fucking. I couldn't think of another adjective. <laughs> I do. Um, love they're always very. Also, <laughs> worth noting that the Los Angeles Herald Examiner calls it the Moby Dick of horror novels. Oh. Um, yeah. <laughs> Jesus. Okay, to the children, the town was their whole world. To the adults, knowing better, Derry, Maine was just their hometown. Familiar, well-ordered, a good place to live. It was the children who saw and felt what made Derry so horribly different. In the storm drains and the sewers, it lurked, taking on the shape of every nightmare, each person's deepest dread. Sometimes it reached up, seizing, tearing, killing. The adults, knowing better, knew nothing. Time passed and the children grew up, moved away. The horror of it was deep buried, wrapped in forgetfulness, until the grown-up children were called back once more to confront it as it stirred and coiled in the sullen depths of their memories, reaching up again to make their past nightmares a terrible present reality. Frightening, epic, and brilliant, Stephen King's It is one of the greatest works of a true storytelling master. 
And I actually prefer that to Dan's version. I think it's just vague too. enough. Yeah, yeah. It's concise and, and just gives you a little taste. I think you needed a little bit more of an expansive synopsis. Uh, I don't know why I said it that way. But back then in the 80s, because I think people really need did judge a book by its cover back then. Well, there was another 80s um, one. I think it was the Cigna edition that just said, if you love turtles and clowns, you're going to love me. Oh, that's the <laughs> and one it I said, had. dash it the book. <laughs> dash it the book. Wait, really? No, 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 I didn't do that. He just made that up. Uh, Looks like we have our own trash mouth on the other side here. Uh, All right. Now, we've read the synopsis. We've talked about the history. We've given our first introductions, but we haven't talked about the hook. Ah, yes. Don't you see? Don't you see how clear it all is? Not only can you see the future, you can i can change it you can change it exactly all right well the hook is the section of the episode in which we talk about what the hell is this book about what are the themes fear baby fear baby <laughs> all right well, well we'll move on babies. to heroes and villains no i'm just joking no that's it uh <laughs> what do we think this book is about i mean we got almost 1200 pages there's a lot of themes. There's a well, lot of uh, things to chew on. But at the core, if you really had to choose. I would say it's about growing up. Wow. And forgetting your childhood, uh, necessarily forgetting your childhood and becoming becoming a grown-up and forgetting the things that uh, scare you the most. But uh, but getting, a re-in- it, getting back in touch with your childhood and the things <laughs> that scare you the most. So, um, yeah, but it's also about fear. <laughs> I think I think the major the major theme is uh, friendship and yeah. aligning with like minded others to do things that you cannot do on your own. Ooh, much like this podcast, mm, yes. pretty much. I I think that the uh, yeah the past I think the childhood, but specifically the passage of childhood to adulthood. Which I mean, one of my I mean I love this book, but one of my main complaints is that I think because it's so many pages, King really leans into the symbolism, like the glass passageway from the kids library to the adult library and what ends up happening to that at the end of the novel. Like, I feel like that's all explicitly very spelled out. And, and also I think the, and King's been here before with Salem's lot and some of his other books, I think just the dark underside of a, of a small town, like how poisonous small town America can be and, and yeah. how much it can trap you. Yeah. yeah. It's that's, so good in this one though. Yeah. yeah. I feel like, I feel yeah, like it really is true. about like the, the sins yeah. that haunt America still like, you know, just like the, and he gets at it from so many different levels uh, with whether he talks about what happens in the eighties or the fifties. Um, I mean, there's just so many allusions to just like bigotry and um, economic like downfalls and um, the even just like the way that the the industrial revolution has changed the culture for the for better and worse. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, there's just a lot to this book. Well, and the kids are all the kids are all the victims of bigotry. They're marginalized for one reason or another. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, for being that. Jewish, uh, being a woman, being black, uh, uh, being overweight, having glasses, being a hypochondriac. Yeah, like they all have something, I think. I love that how that, made. yeah, I love how that Times review is like, it's, this isn't political enough. This isn't this, this isn't that. And I just thought, did you read this book? Like yeah. it's all in there. <laughs> were, you, were you ever a child? <laughs> yeah. yeah. I also love how they, I love how they like unfavorably compare it to Firestarter. Like, like it doesn't have any of these great qualities of Firestarter. <laughs> no. Really? Which, like, yeah. Yeah. Which I thought Firestarter was the most hollow of his books, to be honest with oh, you. I but really, yeah, but hey, yeah. it was very political. It's also um, there's a huge deal to be made about how when you do grow up, you stop seeing the magic and you're impervious to 
insights that strike you as a child because you're actually more open to believing and therefore more open to impacting the world. It's true. I mean, I think there's something to be said about the way that everyone kind of just turns a cold shoulder to things. You know, I mean, like even in this section, uh, we mm. see a little bit of that when Mike Hanlon's talking about how he's doing research and there are people in the town that know that there is Pennywise out there, that they've seen this sort of evil, for lack of a better word, that has haunted this town over and over again. And they don't know how to explain it. They, you know, you have old souls that are talking about hearing the voices down the drain also, but just kind of being like, eh, I'm going to, I'm just going to shrug it off. And I think there's something to be said about that idea of the, the American sins, you know, like becoming complacent with the way things are and and not being a a voice for change because you just want to be left alone and, you know, minding your own business. You know, just want to be comfortable in your conservatism. Ra- yeah. Raking all yeah. over the bathroom. I mean, Raking change is terrifying. <laughs> something I always think, of, I've, been, I've been thinking about this a lot lately, is something I, I really try and do as I get older is just keep an open mind about everything, you know? And, uh, you know, we're all critics and everything, and so obviously we can fall into being opinionated, but I, th- I think it's a real struggle as you become an adult to realize that, your point of view is not the only point of view and that there, I mean, it sounds just simple and like hippy dippy, but I really do think a lot of adults I encounter, they'll just, they'll just like flippantly write off things so much, you know, whether it's a movie or someone else's opinion. Um, it's like, I always talk about when we're talking about horror movies and people pick apart the logic and I've seen so many adults and, you know, for Halloween been like, Oh yeah, that makes sense. Dropping the knife. And that, that to me is just such like a rigid adult viewpoint. And I, yeah, I think when you're a kid, you're just like, everything's more flexible, you know, which is both why they can see Pennywise and also why he, why they become victims of him in a way. So yeah, and that really resonated with me this time yeah. around more so than, than the past. And each of them listen to the other one when they are asking, you know, what did it look like to you? What What is your worst fear? And everyone is legitimized through that, where the adults, like, mm-hmm, even, mm-hmm. even in the first section, we have the woman who drives away, even though she sees, or I don't know if it's actually a woman, but someone who drives away when she sees Adrian Mellon being killed. Um, like they can't even look at the horror. Uh, it's, it's very, very interesting. Well, I think there's, there is a parallel to be made between these themes of the, the idea of the, the sins and fear and how they're intertwined and how our own fears inhibit so much change in society and vice versa. And I think that there's something to be said about how he King uses the seed of horror, which is something that he really, you know, obviously became a cash cow for and, use that to be able to just kind of meditate on so many things about it, you know? And I, and I think like, you know, he's been quoted as saying like, this book was the summation of everything I've learned and done in my whole life up to this point. And I think it's really hard to dispute that after reading this book, I think, you know, we've already talked about in the history of this book that this does feel like a master thesis of his work, but I think he really does get to the core. It does feel less almost of a thesis and more of a dissertation of just what fear is mm, and what yeah. it does to society, what it does to people and, and how that infects every facet of life. I mean, dairy is such an interesting microcosm of America. I mean, there's something to be said about this being set in the fifties in which idealized America existed. You know, it's like the post world war two nuclear mm. family, um, bullshit, uh, blue velvet style ending where it yeah. just, everything's great. Everything's grand. We're going to go That's, get some milk. Um... We're going to go get some, you know, ice cream, hot dogs, hamburgers, you know, fireworks. And, 
you know carnival canal days yeah and like it's like what a what a grand time to be alive and yet you're absolutely just yeah and there's a cd underbelly so i mean not only that but it's amplified when adrian's boyfriend is being like you think there's bigots everywhere and like you're right but like let me show you just how much it's amplified here it's Mm -hmm. very strange but it is just the seed that's existing everywhere taken to a natural conclusion given the powers of this like evil force that's lived there for so long. Which it seems very meta in a way that mm-hmm. he's that the, the whole, that whole discussion. And obviously we'll talk about Adrian Mellon and his lover and in, in, in the heroes and villains section, but that does feel very meta in the sense that there, he's acknowledging himself that Daria is this sort of microcosm that he's created, you know, that a lot of the themes and the examples that he's going to be presenting in here are, very heightened and sensationalized and in a way that we he is using this as metaphor and that this is saying something larger about maybe america maybe just life in general the great thing about this book is everyone's been a kid Mm -hmm. everyone's been scared of something at one point in their lives especially when they were kids uh and it is such a a tale that anyone can really relate to i mean there's and there's so many characters I mean, you have the lucky seven first, just right out the gate, <laughs> and then every, and then a ton on top of that. And you, can, and at some point, either in their childhood or in their older lives, you can relate to one of those people <laughs> in some way. You know what I mean? Well, I think there's something to be said about the twenty-seven, you know, and that so much of our life we keep wondering. Well, we're growing up; things are changing, but do things really change? I mean, do we really, I mean, maybe we're not as terrified as the dark as we were as a kid, but we're still terrified of something else. And that whatever fear we had at age 11 or 12 is going to be replaced by another fear, or it could very well be the same theory. Well, look at Eddie in the book. I mean, he he's like an amplified version of himself. Even though he's forgotten everything, I mean, he's he's like afraid of sickness his entire life, you know? I mean, Bev is afraid of her dad her entire life, which is why yeah, she's yeah, marrying yeah. her dad, you know? yeah. They don't end up examining the fears. They just grow complacent with them and, like, sort of learn to live under their sway while thinking that they are successful. And I think that just ties into what happens when we become adults. And yeah. I think it's also the message is if you if you look at the positive side of it and how this thing can be combated, I, a big part of it is that it's unfair who that mission falls to. It falls to children that are not capable or that we wouldn't think are capable and shouldn't be having to see these things. Um, and it falls to the members of the communities that are marginalized instead of like some people that are privileged and better able to tackle this sort of stuff. It has to fall to them. It, it reminds me of almost like a, a, a far more deeper and far more nuanced and far more complicated uh, Salem's Lot. I mean, he's talking, I mean, a lot of Salem's Lot is about xenophobia for me. You know, it's the, the outsider coming in and ruining this small town life. But that fear of that small town life changing for the worst is embedded in this book. He's definitely um, come back home to that story for sure mm-hmm. in terms of like a small town and a seemingly nice great place to live but mm-hmm. there's just something that's not quite right and something that everybody have gotten really comfortable with i mean right down to that sequence with the the cops with agent Mellon and mm-hmm. the trial and they, they love that that line where they say a clown was never mentioned or something like that you yeah know? No. and it's just like people are so willing to look away just because they don't want to have to deal with the what what's really happening yeah yeah and it's it's individualist versus collective well, again like i think i think friendship is 
the driving force here because everyone is complacent because they just want to worry about themselves and they want to get the promotion and be the police chief that has the good record or um, no one can think about how banding together to do the right thing is worth it. It's just never worth it for them. They just want to look out for their selfish wants. Well, there's something to be said about him taking this very microscopic approach to what the individual adds to the greater point of society. I mean, if you really look and see what experience is and what, what identity is, identity really just is, I always look at, I always think of the, um, the visual metaphor of taking your finger on to a desk and dragging it. And you just gather dust on that finger. And I feel like that's what life is. It's just you just keep living. And whether you gather your passions, your fears, your experiences, they all inform who you are. But they also inform how you are going to interact in society. And by him having this wide ensemble of different fears, experiences, and anxieties, he does tailor it to the greater dairy and how those kind of connections and those complexities sort of kind of mingle together. And I think there's something to be said about what that means as the overall whole to what fear, anxiety, passion, everything, and how that informs society as a whole. And and how it maybe fear is what always triumphs. Do you do you feel that or am I just totally I do. I, I mean, yeah, totally. Because yeah. no one's talking about it is a um, huge mm-hmm. no no one will connect and share like that's the whole reason that the kids can actually do anything is that, and there's a whole big moment where they have to all say that they believe or that it happened or that it was real. Um, that's way, that's way further in the book. I mean, but, the, yeah, no, I agree. I, and I, I think, I mean, the, the first interlude ends with Mike saying, please God, don't let me have to call them. You mm-hmm. know, like he's scared and you, like you think still at this point, like absolutely the fear is just, totally rattled and you think it's just overwhelming so it's almost like uh, at the, this point in the book it's as if he's suggesting that fear is a fuel of of society in a way that we are just driven by our own fear because we're often prisoners to our own fear and that it's those that either turn aside to it like maybe the six adults that leave town or those that stick around that have to like really face it and kind of live with it and kind of dwell with it. And maybe that's the sort of dichotomy that King is kind of presenting here is that there are those that live with it and there are those that that shy away with it. But does anyone ever really conquer it? Where do you stand on the idea of what what fear does to this person? Do Do you think that we ever do conquer it? I mean, where we are right now in this book, is this something that is conquerable or is it something that we have to just keep putting back in our pocket? I think it's something, I don't think we put it back in our pocket. I think the way to function healthily is to, all right, I'll put, sorry, I'll put more succinctly. I think the way to face your fear is to acknowledge your fear. I, I don't, I think by nature of what fear is, you can never fully get over it. But I think the difference between a functional healthy person and a dysfunctional unhealthy person is that the former knows how to recognize it and say, okay, I'm afraid of this thing. Now that I've said that out loud, I can actually face it and, and hopefully live my life. That's, that's what it means to me. And that's what the book reflects to me. Um, yeah. Fa- face it and ask for help with it. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. That's a good, yeah. Very good addendum to that. Uh, that. That's a very socially conscious thing that I don't think everyone really ever believes in. I think there's the, that mistrust of society is one of the reasons why fear is able to conquer. Um, and I think that's kind of one of the big conceits of this book too, is that the idea that, 
it is hard to trust your your neighbors. It is hard to trust your friends. It is hard to conquer your own fears because of that mistrust. And maybe that's something that he's kind of getting out in this book as well. Um, and that maybe you should actually trust your, you know, if we did have that trust, if we did have that love, maybe fear wouldn't be such a big problem. Um, you and know, I think and that, that that's the, the thing that's most interesting to me is that there's, these are people that come back years later and they trust and love the friends that they probably only really truly trusted and loved in their life mm -hmm. uh, are the ones that, that they knew when they were kids before they really had any of these responsibilities or anything like that. Like it was true blue uh, real. And um, I just think that it's interesting. I think it's interesting to me that King at this time, like you were saying that if he was in fact thinking of hanging it up, um, going back and dealing with these things that he's fearing, you know, like, or just mentioned of Clyde Barker being like a, a better writer than him and, or, or horror writer at least. Yeah. And all these things and this total introspective, um, thought about, well, why, what scares me, you know, like yeah. going back and, 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 and tackling these, these things that scared these kids, uh, and just the idea of fear in general. Um, it, it is very, very cool that this ended up being kind of well at the time you know like you said like or like dan was mentioning that his, his thesis um personally i think at this point in the book it's dodgy i think it needs to be dodgy in terms of where, whether we can conquer our fears i mean stan certainly doesn't mm -hmm. and they i mean they they illustrate that very clearly in the first part yeah. so i think it's scary that they're that, that that it's out there and that's something um that maybe maybe we're not going to be able to defeat this thing I, I think it's the parallel that i keep thinking about with this is and i've always thought there are similarities maybe it's just because the way the films are presented but you know you look at the body and so much of that book is is, is i mean that's a coming of age story as well just as similar as, as as it and it involves a group of friends that you know that are bound together and and how time separates them and I think that King is really a strong proponent for friendship. And I think that in every one of his books, it's the connections that between people that ultimately um, lead to success. And, yeah, and isolation is always the opposite. Exactly. Yeah. And I, and I, I think that's the truth because I, I think what, what makes this book so palpable and, and tangible for anyone is that, you know, yes, we all have grown up with fears and, and you know, conquered our own sort of demons, but... I think that they're, they're, you know, when you think about people if who have to move or if you have to grow up, I mean, the, the, the biggest fear and change is those that are around you and those that have to make their own decisions. They have to have, make their own sort of choices in life and whether you're going to be on that path with them. I mean, are you going to be surrounded by the same people that you love right now that you will be 5, 10, 15 years later? Um, the people that you that you love, are they going to die? Are they going to move away? Are they, I mean, I think that's a huge big part of the fear. And I think that that unity of the friendship here, there's something, there's a parallel with that as well. I think there's a tie of like, well, you know, what if I, what if life changes and we aren't together anymore? Can I handle my own fears uh, without you all? Um, do I, is, is life changes for the worst or does it change for the best without you? I, I think that, you know, friendship is such a, an intrinsic value of life in general 
And I think that there is something to be said about the the Losers Club as a unity here and, and, and what that says. I mean, and I think there's a lot of parallels between that and Stand By Me, in which you see a character that's surrounded by no friends by the, or not Stand By Me, the, the body, where you see a character that is surrounded by none of his friends anymore. They're all gone. They're in the past and he's sitting there with what he learned. And granted, you're not really getting into Gordy's mindset at that point of where, what he's terrified of anymore because he has his own children to worry about and all. But I, I think that, that that sense of isolation, that sense of friendship is a huge, I mean, that's obviously paramount to this story, but I think that's a huge part of King and maybe that's where he was at too. You know, maybe he felt isolated alone. Sorry, I'm kind of going off on a tangent. No, there. No, <laughs> no, 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 I think it is about like, yeah, where, where you draw your power from and mm-hmm. the sort the you know, warriors for light and life tend to draw it from each other, from a group dynamic. Um, Whereas the powers for darkness and King books are always trying to, um, I'm, so, I'm about to teach Othello. So I'm thinking of everything in terms of like, you know, it's like how Iago wants to like set everyone apart and isolate them and prey on their individual fears so that they actually look at everyone else and their view is perverted and yeah. they think that no one is with them and they are a, a lone victim, um, which is also kind of what produces bullies, you know, and mm-hmm. that's, that's the difference between how the losers club is able to operate and how the bullies are able to operate. I think it's also uh, very cool that the next book that he would write is drawing of the three, which is all about, you know, a loner coming together and creating this band mm-hmm. of, of the quartet, you know, to, yeah. to, to, to battle this evil. Uh, so that definitely, definitely is a theme there. Well, I mean, I just think of, you know, I know we would try to not get too personal with these episodes and stuff, but even just like the conceit of this podcast, it's very self. I mean, one of the reasons why I thought like, well, we should be called Losers Club is not only just because it is such a popular, you know, book at the time and it's, oh, it's great for SEO marketing and whatever, yada, yada, yada. But this has felt like a family. This has felt like a unity. I mean, this that there is that sort of, that we've all had really dramatic things that have happened over the course of a year and a half doing this podcast. And I think that there are ties, even just rereading this book now um, and listening to Stephen Weber read it for me. Uh, I do feel that the reassurance of just knowing that like, okay, I, I have been in this sort of abyssal darkness over the past couple, you know, past seven or eight months and having that, notion of knowing that I can turn to friends and, and talk to them about some things and go over these these fears and then they can share me the, their experience of those sort of feelings and those sort of fears has definitely gotten me through and being able to conquer any sort of anxieties that I've had. Um, I mean, has it changed the fact that I still look in the mirror and I go, God damn it, I'm so worried about this and that? No, but it has helped in the sense of knowing that they are there. And if they weren't there, then who knows? I mean, I, I don't know where I would be. And I think that that's a very tangible emotion of this book is just knowing how important that is in your life, no matter how old you get. Uh, and I think, totally. that's what, and I think that's what King is definitely trying to sell with this book. At least that's what I get from this book. And, and I don't think it's presumptuous to say that our listeners tap into that as well. We've, I mean, we've received multiple messages saying I've been, you know, mocked for putting Stephen King high on my favorite list. And it has been very empowering and very, reassuring to find a group of people who are willing to delve into these books and take them seriously. And I feel as though I have found a group of people that I can relate to and take power from in this way. Um, so it's, it's a self-perpetuating mechanism, hopefully that King, King is trying to kickstart here. 
Well, yeah. we, we always say, I mean, I, I feel like we've probably said this before in the podcast, but, you know, it's changed a little bit with the advent of Stranger Things and just nostalgia having this high currency these days. But at least for me growing up, it was not cool to read Stephen King or even like horror. That That was not like a celebrated thing, you know what I mean? So mm-hmm. I think most people who gravitate toward the genre, and I wasn't like picked on or anything, but it, like it wasn't something I could really nerd out about all the time in class, you, you know what I mean? And um, yeah. see, so yeah, I, I, I think I think people who get into genre fiction or get into horror, like a lot of times, yeah, they most of them have had experience experiences with feeling maybe a little bit alienated or at least not be able not having people they can connect with over something that they're they're passionate about. I, and, yeah, I and I think that's a total outsider. Yeah, and I but I yeah. th- I think that's what's such a big sell for this book too is that I, I think in a meta way, this book actually does feel most like the emblematic book of Stephen King because you do feel like the characters in this book. You feel marginalized. You feel and I had I mean certainly when it wasn't in vogue, that's exactly how I felt. You know, it's like, oh look at the weird creepy kid reading the creepy book. And you know, when you read this book and you see like these two, these all these kids that are bound together by something that's very, you know, they're united by that sort of eeriness, that sort of creepiness that they're experiencing. It's kind of there is a parallel, weird spiritual connection to be made between those and like fellow listeners or, or fellow, you know, readers of that of King's work as well. So it's almost like this, like there is a that sort of meta feeling to it. Yeah, totally. I I think that just when we started doing this podcast, it was just a bunch of friends that wanted to talk about Stephen King and now it's become this huge network of you know losers across the the globe yeah (laughs) and uh there's it's it's so rewarding to talk to people and have people come and say finally you know like you guys are saying things that we we I've said and thought you know (laughs) for years and never knew anybody else saw these things either and um it it's this strange thing of coming together and and coming together under strange circumstances too uh, and and I'll just I'll cite Mel our Bev of the podcast um, when when Mel joined, it was just kind of like this strange like stars aligning. I don't know, <laughs> not to put too much pressure on you, Mel, but uh, we love you. <laughs> oh, it's, it was an exceptionally resonant with this book in particular circumstance. I mean, I feel like when Ben joins up with them and he was kind of like I didn't even know what I was missing. You know, like um, yeah. I hadn't even conceived of having a group of friends like this. And now that I do, I can't really conceive of not having it. Um, that's definitely like what it felt like. And mm-hmm. then to actually start hanging out outside of the pod was like extremely rewarding in a way that was like, holy shit. Um, this extends far beyond, um, just people who get together <laughs> to talk about books yeah. that they no, like. Totally. If, if I had to boil it down to like one word, it would probably be friendship for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but uh, do we want to talk any more about the hook or do we want to get into the structure and format? I think we should. Structured format. Let's do it. Look at me. Look at me, teacher. All right. Well. Now that we're uh, all done crying and uh, hugging each other, and, uh, <laughs> and, and <laughs> Very, it was relevant sappiness. It was. It yeah, was. Yeah, it was. Yeah. Let's talk about how King writes this book. Yeah. Now let, let me ask you a question. So King said that he thought that this was a mess mm-hmm. and all over the place. Yeah. In general, before we get into chapter chapter one, do you guys agree with that? 
Are we just talking about the first section, or I would just not. Uh, I mean, the whole book, not to whole. go into too much detail, okay. but just just a yes or no. Like, I, a, just give the the actual structure of the book seems very purposeful to me. Okay. It's got five parts. It's got five parts of three to six chapters each, and it's got five interludes, one between each of the five parts, and it's got an epilogue, right. and that seems incredibly, yeah, purposeful. Again, like mm-hmm. that doesn't seem like a mess going in. Um, right. It's been a while since I've done a complete reread, so I'll let you know my updates. But I, I that seems structured to me. Yeah, and I, I think that for me, the like the structure and format feel very actually very sound and and very well thought out. I do think toward the end, once again, I won't go too far into it. I do think King drops the ball a little bit with with the actual events that happen later I agree. on. I but, agree. But to me, that's not really part of the structure format. It's something a, a device that I love that he does throughout the book is that he alternates between the the present and the past so much that a sentence from the present will directly segue into what's going on in the past and vice versa. And I, I actually think he handles the structure and format very well. Um, it's, it's more just that some of the content down the line, does, like I said, doesn't quite stick the landing. Um, but yeah, what, what do you guys think about that? I mean, I've always been a pretty big fan of just the going the back to the, the past and the present. I mean, we've had a lot of debates just with the, how the movie production has, has, has handled mm-hmm. um, the the way that they've split up the the youth and the adults, and I think it's actually I, I, I like that for the film, uh, just because again, like I mentioned, I really do love a, a good reunion narrative, and I don't really I don't think you really get that so much when you do them all commingled together. Um, but in terms of the book, I think it's interesting because you really do get you really do get introduced to the characters as adults before you even, you know, actually meet them as children, which is so in hindsight now, having actually seen, you know, you see the 2017 film, which now feels like this ubiquitous sort of adaptation of mm-hmm. it. It, it is weird to come to the, to meet these adults and then find out all about them as, as well, children. I'd... I it's th- masterful in terms of suspense. It really is, though. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's it, the pacing and the, the nuance, the detail of, of how he weeds in uh, all these sort of ways to kind of make callbacks is great. I mean, it, it, it's 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 almost like very David Simon-esque in the sense that you probably, probably sat there and just put all the details up on a bulletin board and was like, all right, how are we going to go back to this? How are we going to go back to that? Well, and that's the thing. I don't think, I don't agree with him. I don't think it's a mess. I think like, like you guys were saying, it's, it's very plotted out there. There's a lot of back and forth and there's a lot of stories that happen. Uh, a lot of like, remember, Oh, I remember this random story that, you know, and that's in terms of time, a conventional timeline, maybe you could say that, but it's all there and mm-hmm. it all, and it moves and it, to me, it did not feel all over the place. Um, the, in terms, yeah. of, in terms of the movie and well, I guess when you're reading it and, and you're introduced to all these adults, I think, I mean, the kids, I mean, it's funny because a lot, you guys read this when you were really little, but I think that he wasn't thinking kids were going to read this. He no. was thinking adults were going to read this. So mm-hmm. it makes sense to have the adults first and then like reminiscing on, on the past. Cause that's how, that's how he was approaching it as a writer. I think, you know, looking back on childhood. So, um, but I do agree with Mike, especially with like stranger things and having this kind of ET element to, um, romanticizing, uh, kids and friendship, uh, starting with the children film wise, uh, it, it, it's, it's working. So I'm interested right. in it too, obviously chapter two, but I, can I tell you where I do think it's a mess? Yes. At least at this first section, I don't actually um, 
I need to figure out how this plays out over the rest of the book, but how information is conveyed with regards to point of view and what this book as an object is, I think is very confused. In the Um, first section here? In in the first section, there's multiple instances of the narrator intruding and we don't know who the narrator Mm. is. And they're, they seem, they seem so random. Um, On page 13, we have, you know, if George had been inhabiting a later year, he would have thought of Ronald McDonald. And it's like, who's speaking there? Um, The first line of the book is in first person, I believe. Um, And on page 16, the boat passing out of this tale forever. And at page 39, at the time of this writing, and who is talking? Um, We get the introduction to the, the first interlude with the notes from Mike Hanlon, that reference, you know, prior to their appearance here, these mm-hmm. notes, blah, blah, blah. So is it King? Is it like some historian? The the media is so mixed and the narrator, the narrator's intrusions are so inconsistent that it makes me wonder if he had some sort of vision that fell apart for um, how this book was being treated as an object. It kind of reminds like me of Christine. Mike's book, yeah. Well, oh, yeah, Christine does because, do that. Yeah, we've yeah. talked about that a lot in that episode, yeah. Because Christine all of a sudden shifts into perspectives halfway through and then it goes back towards the end. Right. And that really did kind of mess with my head a little bit as well. I mean, it, it does feel weird feel... that it is an omniscient. It's third person omniscient. Well, yeah, but... I'll read the first sentence, which is so weird. The terror, oh, which would not end for another 28 years, if it ever did end, began so far as I know or can tell with a yeah. boat. And I'm just like, is it King? Like... Is it Mike? Is it, yeah. is it Bill? Especially when you have way? someone like Mike Hanlon, who is such, like, he's such an anthropologist almost, or he's such yeah. a doc. Like, there's so, there's so much precedence set on him being this archivist. To have another person who's not yeah. Mike Hanlon seems yeah. a little crazy to me. It, yeah, it definitely weird. figures itself out as it goes, and I think it leans way more on Mike as we go forward. But yeah, it, I do agree. It is a little muddy here in the beginning, uh, even in terms of how they start the story. Just jumping to to the the Adrian Mellon story mm-hmm. right off the gate, and then you know it, it's like, wait, where where are we? And especially if you know the story already, or if you've yeah. seen the miniseries, maybe before reading this. I was just, I was a little thrown off. I didn't know what time period we were in. I was very like, wait, what's well, here's going a, on? Here's a question then. What if this was split between the two the the two sections of having the youth and that starts off with Georgie and goes right through, just like uh, Andreas Machete's film from last year. And then the second one did start off with Adrian Mellon and both were perhaps told in the point of view of Mike Hanlon's book that is referenced throughout this entire Mm. first section. I think you gain, what you gain from that is satisfaction um, from knowledge and the callbacks that come when you join the adults. Um, There is a sense of satisfaction in seeing how the two match up but i don't i don't think that satisfaction is the same or as good or as rewarding as the satisfaction we get from mystery solving the entire time i agree yeah. i agree yeah and then seeing and, and, them come together and also too like with how it plays into the just the rest of the book especially towards the uh the climax in both the kids world and the adults world in those two different timelines i think what you lose also is that blur that bridging of childhood and adulthood and the blurring of it and the right, the right. forgetting of things which I, th- I think i think you can get away i think you can get away from that in the movie a little bit better just be- given the 
just given the trademarks of the genre. You know what I mean? I just think that's harder to pull off like cinematically, but on the page, especially when you have this kind of elaborate structure that King has it, I think it, it does work much better. Yeah. And, and you guys have touched on this a little bit, but something I had forgotten about because I had just seen the movie last year and I've read this book so many times. I forgot about how little he reveals in this first section. I mean, mm -hmm. by the end of it, you don't really know what happens by the end. You just get little glimpses here and there. And once again, I think that's so effective and so savvy from that mystery uh, solving standpoint. Um, like you're several hundred pages into this book by the end of the first section and you're still piecing together everything. And I, yeah, I think that is super rewarding. And it, it definitely, it also is, eminently effective at rewarding rereads you want to reread the book because you Definitely. can spot things that you know oh, upon yeah. reading it the mm -hmm. first time yeah I, I after i was done I, or even even after the first part i was like oh god i could you know it's so dense and i also think yeah it's huge in terms of the idea of forgetting forgetting things so it's really rewarding to see i mean we're right there with these with the older versions of these people and, and they're slowly rediscovering this, this horror that they've totally forgotten about. So I think in the book, it, it, it lends itself to that a lot more. I think it works a lot more. In the, I'm really interested to see chapter two of the film, to see if mm -hmm. it works. And we've seen some footage from that already, uh, or at least pictures of, of like them with their, the their younger selves in, right in front of them, having these almost like waking dreams yeah. and remembering these things. And I think that that'll work really well on the screen. Um, but you know, I love. I also love the miniseries. I love. I love meeting each adult and going back, and then we have the reunion. Mm -hmm. You know, so it's like I. I still think that really works on the kind of uh, more press screen as well. Yeah, sort of thing. Mm -hmm. It's it's a little messy if you look at the chapter titles. Like it seems like we're establishing a pattern that then gets broken, and then the new one picks up. And like at first we have all these years, and then it's like, oh no, now there's now there's patterns within patterns. We get Bill Denbro beats the devil one. Um, so I, I think maybe that too is like, well, maybe you should have just kept it all over the place instead of trying to establish patterns. Yeah. Yeah. It's oh, time. hold on. Briefly, briefly. Can all we talk right. about the quotes that, um, oh, yeah, well, yeah, there's yeah. quotes, yeah. there's quotes before the entire book, which is just like, I think just some quotes about being in town and there's out of the blue and into the black, which does come into the section that we read. Um, I just wanted to harp on the William Carlos Williams poem that is on the page introducing part one and it's from a an epic poem um called patterson and i just wanted to look up why he included this because I, I don't really get it like reading the poem i was like what is happening um but it's a long poem in four this is a quote from the author uh, william carlos williams patterson is a long poem in four parts that a man in himself is a city beginning seeking achieving and concluding his life in ways which the various aspects of a city may embody if imaginatively conceived any city all the details of which may be made to voice his most intimate convictions part one introduces the elemental character of the place the second part comprises the modern replicas. Three will seek a language to make them vocal. And four, the river below the falls will be reminiscent of episodes, all that any one man may achieve in a lifetime. Um, and I thought reading that, maybe it's a little room 237, but I thought that matches up very well with what we're about to do. I think so, too. I think it, I think it absolutely does. And maybe that's pretty much of his insistence. I think... If we're talking about the quotes, though, the one right under it is by my New Jersey boss, the Bard himself, uh, Bruce Springsteen, and he references at the time. This is pretty a new song for him. Uh, born in the USA, it's yeah. the opening line. Is born down in a dead man's town, uh, and that's a that's a pretty modern quote, you know, for him to kind of put there. And this is like two years removed from that album because what is it, Born in the USA is in '84, right? 
Yeah, I think so. I mean, and even the the Neil Young one too, the Out of the Balloon into the Black. I mean, that was from Rust Never Sleeps, which is only the late seventies, you know. So yeah, I think he's getting he's getting a little contemporary there. There's rock references, and I I fucking love both those songs. It oh. is funny with the Springsteen one because, I mean, it's it's the it's the curse of Born in the USA. It's why Rob Reagan co-opted it as a uh, as a campaign song, even though the song is very much against what Reagan stood for. But it's funny because when you read the phrase "Born down in a dead man's town," that is very accurate in describing it. But then when you hear the tone of it in the song, it's like so exuberant, you know. It, it just says it just feels like a little bit more um, bombastic than it is as an, as a novel. But I, I think that just more ties to the tone of "Born in the USA" in general. Well, you know, it also includes the, and this is all before the contents, uh, that Neil Young one is the out of the blue and into the black. That's like right before the whole table of contents. And right above that, you get the 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 quote from George Zephyrus, who's the, um, like a Greek poet um, that is a Greek, it looks like a diplomat too. So, I mean, mm-hmm. this, which is interesting. So he, that, that quote is, old friend, what are you looking for? After those many years abroad, you come with images you tended under foreign skies, far away from your own land. I mean, what do we make of that? Yeah, it's just about an old friend coming Homecoming. Home. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I, yeah, I think it's it's speaking to uh, these things are universal concerns that span time. And it, we kind of get with the spring scene in the young, like maybe this is going to be a uniquely American story, but with the William Carlos Williams and the Sepphoris, it's also, again, a universal concern. Well, I have an interesting fun fact that uh involves this george Sepphoris quote mm. do you know where this also popped up in it's no a bo- it's a book that we talked about and involves a small town so road work also, Sal- also kings salem's lot really mm-hmm. oh interesting yeah both both books yeah. open with this quote good fine whoa wow so that's a uh, it's very interesting that uh that, that you would have that i i wonder what the impetus is for that though is it both just a, a concept of that? Here's another town that's in Maine. Well, I wonder if he uses it in in any of his small town Maine stories. I think it's just the two of these. You yeah, know, I'm sure. You know, which is maybe he forgot. <laughs> yeah. That'd be great. You know, he just oh, I've absolutely... got this great quote. I want. I've got this great quote. I want to use in this. Uh, I've Tabby, never. Have used you it. heard this before? Tabby, have I used this? And Tabby's like, oh fuck, I don't know. It's like, I don't really feel like, uh, you know. Oh, Steve, not with the George again. <laughs> I, I, this voice that we've gone into with King and Tabby, it, I, I can I can only think of their scene in Maximum Overdrive. Like, the, this ATM just called me an asshole. Like, every, that's just like, I'm picture their marriage now. Because <laughs> we've done that All time. right. <laughs> Uh, well, either way, we got some really great quotes and just proves that King loves to scrapbook his work with some uh, other pop culture uh, maybe you could have scrapbooked uh, this book a, a little bit. That's such a good verb to use. Like, he, he likes scrapbooking. It is a scrapbook. And yeah. like this whole book is like a scrapbook. Mm-hmm. And it almost it's feels like... in the book. Too. I, I, yeah. I almost feel like you could have uh, you could have leaned a little harder on his uh, aesthetic for Carrie here if you would have just used supplemental materials to tell the whole story. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah that would have been a, a really cool uh, throwback to that. Yeah, if we had some maybe some news articles, yeah. just straight up articles or, or just kept going. interviews or something with the town after post you know what happens to the town um you know maybe max brooks can rewrite this uh and write it just kind of like similar to world <laughs> War Z. Oh, mike God. does say it's it's very, he can only find things out that are accurate through oral tradition yeah. none of it is really documented that well but hey you know that uh once it's insisted in king's dominion it's fact 
uh, <laughs> the majority of the time. You know, like all those situations when they're like, well, you know, we didn't find out what happened. Uh, similar to, you know, back in the 1800s. Some people thought. <laughs> Some people thought, which means it happened. It happened. So, yeah, exactly. Come on up, Richie. I got a balloon for you. <laughs> Don't you want a balloon? <laughs> What's the matter? One balloon, not enough. Try a bitch! Well, you heard the clown. That's a wrap on this episode. Now, don't go away. Next week, we're going to return with part one, The Shadow Before, which we'll cover after the flood, 1957, after the festival, 1984, the six phone calls from 1985, and the first interlude from Mike Hanlon's journals. In this episode, we'll continue to run through our other categories, such as heroes and villains in the cemetery and word processor of the gods or pound cake or king's dominion, misery, you know, all your favorites. So until then, long days and pleasant nights. I got some hot friends. God, I got some hot friends. I got some hot friends. God, I got some hot friends. But you know you want some. This has been a bloody disgusting show. Thanks for tuning in. If you like our programming, consider searching for other bloody disgusting podcasts, such as Creepy, Horror Queers, The Boo Crew, SCP Archives, Nightlight, Margaret's Garden, Nightmare on Film Street, and more.